Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. So as he said, my name is Trey Vile. Uh, I have been a resident here serving for the past year. I actually just passed my one-year anniversary at Hill City. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it's been very special. And for a long time, I had to sort of say like, hi, I'm Trey, you know, like I'm new here. Uh, and it feels really nice to kind of be past that point. It feels like, oh yeah, I'm Trey, and I've, I've been here for, for at least a little while. So um, would you please uh, remain standing and, and bring your attention as we read Psalm 7. A Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, so uh, again, if uh, my name is Trey Vile, it's an honor to be up here and to have served you for the past year to serve this church body. Um, and if you are new to Hill City or if you call Hill City home, I want to start off by saying uh, welcome. Welcome here. We, we believe that for all of her faults and failures, that the church is the means by which God is, what we say, making all things new, and more on that later. So you should know uh, that we are uh, nearing the end of our summer in the Psalms. Uh, we've been taking the, the first handful of Psalms in our Bibles, and we've been going to them and learning how to pray through our emotions and our experiences. So far we've seen David, king of Israel, um, who is one of uh, a few authors of these psalms and how he gives vent to his rage, his doubt, his confusion, his frustration. And ultimately, 
He uses them to strengthen his relationship with the God that to him felt to be so near. If you grew up anywhere around here, so Springfield, Missouri, the Midwest, it's likely that you don't exactly have a clear-cut relationship with these emotions. Um, So maybe you've gone to counseling or even therapy, and I think that that's a beautiful, beautiful thing that that is becoming more common in our world. Or even if you've just discovered the sort of like Myers-Briggs Enneagram world to help you put some new language and words behind what you're experiencing. I think all that's incredible. And I think it all comes from somewhere. So some of us, we learned really early on that there were some good and there were bad emotions and that the best way that we could operate in the world with those was to take them and to cram them down to hide them from everybody else. And maybe today, some of us feel it's difficult to even access those emotions anymore and not feel totally dead inside. Some of us gave full vent to all of our emotions in the household that we grew up in, and so now we have seen that sort of destroy our relationships and fracture them, and we don't have any idea of how to proceed, especially not as it pertains to our relationship with God. This is nothing new, so be encouraged by that. This is just the human condition. I think it was Anne Lamott who said that when we pray, when we go to God in prayer, we really only have three prayers. I felt like this hit really close to home for me. We have thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And help me, help me, help me. And those are really the only prayers that we pray. And so what we often assume about God when we take our emotions to prayer is that we assume that he, one, already knows what we're experiencing, Two, that he already knows how we're feeling. And three, that he's just waiting for us to tell him what he ought to do about it. And I think what's beautiful about the Psalms that we've read, and the first six Psalms especially, is that we we get to see that David actually assumes something totally different. David seems to assume that God is interested in what your situation is. That God deeply cares about how it's moving it in you, moving your emotions, and actually already knows what he's going to do about it. So that's why we come to the Psalms today. We're, we're, We're going to hear these authors' emotions so that we can in turn learn how to pray through them ourselves. I think it's really interesting that that David's words of anxiety, rage, doubt, have in turn become God's words back to a people who experience anxiety, rage, and doubt. It's almost like God isn't surprised that you're like 23 years old and and riddled with anxiety. It's just food for thought. And so we come to now Psalm 7. So I know that that the ESV, which we read earlier, can feel a little bit clunky, can often, for me, go in one ear and out the other. So we're going to read it one more time. I want to read it in the message version. Uh, So please don't email me after this. Uh, I really appreciate it. So I I welcome you, I invite you to close your eyes um, just to prepare yourself to, to take this psalm in. God, God, I am running to you for dear life and the chase is wild. 
If they catch me, I'm finished. I'm ripped to shreds by foes fierce as lions, dragged into the forest and left unlooked for, unremembered. God, if, if I've done what they say, if I've betrayed my friends, if I've ripped off my enemies, if my hands are really that dirty, let them get me. Walk all over, all over me. Leave me flat on my face in the dirt. Stand up, God. Pit your holy fury against my furious enemies. Wake up, God. My accusers have packed the courtroom, and it's judgment time. Take your place on the bench. Reach for your gavel. Throw out the false charges against me. I'm ready. I'm confident in your verdict. Innocent. Close the book on evil, God. But publish your mandate for us. Get us ready for life. You probe for our soft spots. You knock off our rough edges. And I'm feeling so fit, so safe. Made right and kept right. God, in solemn honor, does things right, but his nerves have been sandpapered raw. Nobody gets by with anything. God is already in action, sword honed on his whetstone, bow strung, arrow on the string, lethal weapons in hand, each arrow a flaming missile. Look at that guy over there. He's slept with sin. He's pregnant with evil. Oh, look, he's having the baby, and it's a lie. See that man shoveling day after day? He's digging, then concealing his trap down that lonely stretch of road. Go back and look again. You'll see him in it head first, legs waving in the breeze. That's what happens. Mischief backfires. Violence boomerangs. And I'm thanking God who makes things right. I'm singing the fame of heaven. Hi, God. You can open your eyes. So I have to admit that when I began preparing for this teaching, I was reading through this poem, which is, which is what the Psalms are. They're ancient Hebrew poetry. And I was admittedly really, I was caught off guard, I have to admit. It's not a super easy Psalm to understand, um, as I'm sure that you can relate. And so I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm praying about it, I'm talking to God, and I just say, like, why couldn't I have preached Psalm 8, the next one that starts out, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh. It, would just, it, would be, it would have been way too easy. It would have been way too easy. So they had to give it to the guy with the Ph.D. So, but Psalm 7, I found out, is actually really a really beautiful psalm, and I felt like it was just perfect that I had the opportunity to, I had the opportunity to learn. And so I'm inviting you into that. So David here is obviously caught in the middle of a situation of which he is entirely innocent. And he's angry and he's crying out to God. And he uses phrases like, judge me according to my righteousness. And we're left thinking, like, who, who is David to like, invite God's judgment on himself? That just seems insane to us. But, but I promise there's a good reason. There's a really good reason. And it comes from a very distinct point in David's life. Uh, so the Psalms are not chronological. Um, so what happened in, say, Psalm 2 with David's son comes after what happens in Psalm 7. So we're actually at, at a very distinct place. It's, it's after David and Goliath, if you're familiar with that story, and it's before David becomes king. So you can find out more about kind of the setting 
for this psalm, if you go back and read 1 Samuel, and that'll just tell kind of all of David's life. I'd recommend just going through the whole thing. So at some point, the story goes, that a rumor gets spread, and we presume from what we see in Psalm 7 that it was this guy who's called Cush the Benjaminite. We don't really know a whole lot else about him, but we, uh, we assume that this is the person who's spreading these lies that we read about in 1 Samuel. So the rumor goes that David was out for the throne, and he was willing to do anything in order to get it, including take out the current king, who was Saul. So he was going to kill Saul, he was going to kill his children, which if you know the story of David doesn't really make great sense. But anyways, the, the king immediately hears this rumor and runs with it. So he gathers a full-on hunting party to hunt down David and to take his life. David finds out about this and he escapes and goes out into the wilderness. And so he's hiding in, in, in this cave, we find out. And so 1 Samuel 24 opens up with a message to King Saul with some intel that, that David is hiding out in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, when I pictured wilderness of En Gedi, I don't know about you, I was picturing like a, it was like a pretty much sand dunes with like a hole in the ground with a bunch of men in there like quietly sweating. And that was, that was my picture. And I was fortunately wrong. I think they actually have a picture of, I don't know if you can see it, but it's very beautiful. It's very beautiful. So there's like this nice waterfall. And, but, and so this is where David and his men were hiding. And so this was obviously a very beautiful place, but it was no like oasis getaway for them. They're hiding for their lives. So the story goes that Saul is, is passing through the wilderness of En Gedi, looking for David and has to, has to relieve himself, as our modest ESV interpreters uh, made sure to note. So it just so happens that Saul walks into this cave, and it's the exact same cave that David and his men are hiding out in. And now I'm imagining like this must have been a really big cave or had like some water running through it or something because Saul has no idea. As you can imagine, David and his men are hiding there, and his men are stoked. They're psyched about what is happening before their eyes. They're like, this is God. God is handing over your enemies into your hands, so you need to execute judgment and take his life. And we don't get to see David's thought process following this conversation. But what we do know is that he, he crouches down, sneaks over behind Saul very quietly, very slowly, and he pulls out his knife, and he just cuts off a small corner of Saul's robe. Very unexpected turn of events. Saul, I, I presume, he stands up, walks out of the mouth of the cave, followed by David. He gets a little ways out of the cave, and David cries out to him with this really lengthy speech about how he was innocent of all of the things that, that Saul had accused him of, and actually even goes on to invite God into the situation as a judge between them. So he invites God to judge Saul and deliver him from Saul's hand. So this is the setting of our prayer in Psalm 7. So David's hiding in the cave. He's hidden in this cleft of rock with all these men gathered around him, and he's praying Psalm 7 to God before all of this happens. We actually read Psalm 18 earlier, and this is even following this circumstance with Saul. 
So does David have a good attitude about what is going on in his life? Does David have any positive feelings towards Saul? I think this is kind of what we assume we need before we can go to the presence of God in prayer. So I have to have a better attitude. I need to have like some really good feelings about like what I'm praying over. And but like David is the victim of a smear campaign that is now go, potentially going to require his life. Saul keeps on hunting him over something that he hasn't done. He's not only angry, something more than that. He's indignant. He is so certain of his own innocence that he actually invites God to let his enemies crush him should he be found guilty. But in the case that he's not, he asks God to totally wipe them out. And so I want you to remember, like we're, we're learning to pray through our emotions, and this is a very real one. One that, that many of us, we either, we either cram down, remember, we, we hide it away until it spills over, or we let it master us, and we just give full vent to it. And very clearly in this psalm is the presentation of those two options to David, and I think ultimately to us. So either on the one hand, David takes Saul's life into his own hands, or he continues to hide and allowing the circumstance to go on indefinitely. Now, if you're here over Advent, you might have heard me mention something called the third way. And I think that this idea, it keeps on coming back in my life. It has over the past like six months. Any time that there are only seemingly, I should say, two options presented to us, I think that Jesus very clearly draws a third path that was seemingly implausible before. So the world, the flesh, and the devil are always trying to push us into one camp or another and then so we can start lobbing missiles at one another. And most times, neither of these options really feel satisfying to us. At best, they're made up of half-truths and things that we tell ourselves to not have to deal with the weight of our situation and our decisions. So I'm of the opinion that Jesus almost always represents a new path. And so I think that this is what we see in the life of David. It's the, it's the path that forces us to face reality, to stop making excuses and, and red herrings of other people's ideas and arguments and to move forward in a new way. We experience our emotions and we give them over to God in prayer. So I want to talk a little bit more about, okay, what, what exactly is David experiencing? Because I think that there is where we're going to find what hits closest, what's closest to home for us. So indignation as, a, as an emotion is definitely anger. It's not one that we would probably describe very often. Like if you've seen the, the emotion wheel, it's a very sort of specific one that we find in there. And if you, if you um, study psychology at all or follow along with cognitive psychology at all, which admittedly I don't, I, I had to just dig in very quickly to, to learn something for this sermon. And as I was preparing, I was... I was reading this Harvard University study that, that claimed that the study of indignation is actually pretty new, which I didn't, I didn't really realize. And what they went on to claim is that indignation is made up of three different sort of 
steps or categories that make it up. The first one being a sort of knee-jerk emotion that we experience when we see something, um, when we see something that we think is wrong. It's that moment of like just being absolutely bewildered that this is the way that the world works. So we experience an emotion. It's most often anger, could be sadness or fear, etc. Then immediately following that, our brain starts to kick into this really complex sort of neurological process where we start to make judgment calls about what it is that we're watching. So we see something, it, it hits us, we're like, that is, I'm angry, I'm upset by this. And then we start to go on to consider, okay, why? What's going on here? I'm saying, okay, this is wrong for this reason. So it's like the logical process. But what's unique about indignation that we don't see with many other emotions, this third and final step is that it often requires a response. It requires a response from us. We see it and we say, this has to stop. This, this cannot continue as, as it is. Indignation is the three-step sort of experience of saying, this is wrong, I am upset, and this cannot continue. I have a really silly example of this. So, so I'm married. I have a wonderful wife, and her name is Toby. And every now and again, Toby and I will, will go out to eat. Um, I love to go, like, on dates. She really enjoys staying at home and, and cooking. And so every now and again, we'll, we'll get to go on a nice date. And we'll go out to dinner. We'll sit down. We'll be having, you know, a really wonderful conversation. Toby's amazing to talk to. I don't know if you've had the chance to talk to her yet. Um, and so we'll be sitting there. We'll, we'll be talking. We'll order our food. And... It's like, this is just the worst day of my life. The food comes out, and it's wrong. And this doesn't happen all the time. Of course, I'm sure it's experience, you've experienced it at some points or others. But I'm there, and I see that the food is wrong, and I just immediately want to melt into my chair. Because I'm like, I don't want to have, have this conversation. I'm totally fine with just eating whatever it is that got placed in front of me. Toby, on the other hand, is much more okay with having that conversation and saying, no, no, this is not what I ordered. The worst part is when she, like, you know, she gets tired of doing that and then looks over at me and she's like, you know, are you going to do anything about this? And so that is just, oh, oh, I hate that feeling. So I'm sure that many of you can relate. You're agreeable to a fault. And so it's this experience, it's very, of course, simple and not very complex, but it's, but it's looking at something and saying, this is wrong, I'm in some sense emotionally affected by this, and this cannot continue. And so actually, another aside, so before I started working at Hill City, I actually was the, the regional manager for like this, this chain of fitness centers, not super obvious, but um, so anyways, I was... I was this regional manager, and, and I just got to say, like, if you are a manager in the room, you're, you're a psychopath. You're absolutely crazy. I love you. I really do. But to have, like, some of you actually enjoy having that conversation multiple times per day. And I, I want more. I want more of it. I want more of it. I love you. That's crazy. I want more of that. And, and Psalm 7 is no different. What we see David doing is, is very similar what does he do when he experiences injustice? Cries out to God, and he says, this is wrong. I'm upset, 
and this cannot continue. He doesn't assume that God already knows about his situation, nor his feelings about it. And he talks to God with all of his emotions in tow. And, and this is something that I deeply struggle with. I mean, even just from that silly example, like this, this is not an emotion that I access very easily. And to give you a little bit more insight, I, I grew up in a world where there were good and there were bad emotions. And what I, what I learned, and I have a wonderful relationship with my home church, it was incredible, and I deeply love those people. But at some point along the way, I picked up this idea that you experience bad emotions when you are emotionally or spiritually immature. And as you mature, you go through this process of of moving from bad emotions to good emotions. So as a kid, you know, I might have experienced like anger or fear. And then as I matured, I was supposed to experience those less. Now, if you can relate to this, you also can probably relate to the experience of growing up, getting older, becoming more mature, and still experiencing all those emotions. And what I, my view of God was that I had this cosmic coach who cared far more about my character development and potential than who I was kind of right then and there. You know, there was this vision of who Trey could become that was far more lovable, per se, than the Trey that was in the present, that was struggling with all these things. Now, and I feel like I need to make a, a bit of a disclaimer. So, Formation, like it, progress is a, is a landmark of spiritual formation, the way of Jesus, hands down. It would be foolish to move forward, you know, leave today, and to take this as a justification to believe that how you feel is the most important thing about you. It's not true, and it's also not very helpful either. So that out of the way, I, I have a very difficult time accessing righteous anger, even over things that really should anger me. And so it's trying to now kind of recognize, man, people throughout our Bibles experience the entire emotional gambit. They experience the whole thing, but the way that they respond to it looks different. So what, this, what I want this to function as is an invitation to a journey one more step in that journey towards Christ. And I believe that, what we, I mean, what we see in Psalm 7 is it says very clearly, God experiences indignation every day. So we don't want to cram it down. We don't cram it down. We don't give it full vent and allow it to master us. We don't, become in, we don't want to become people that are easily angered, but who have a vision for the world as it ought to be, and we're pushing towards that end. Because we don't, need, we don't need less anger in our world. We need better. We need better anger. We actually have a very strong tradition for this. Did you know? So, I love old guys. I think that they are like the coolest people on the planet. Um, so, 
this is kind of a weird segue, but, but I think that anybody who makes it through middle life without being super bitter, I'm like, that's, hey, you made it. That's huge. So Toby, actually, she kind of makes fun of me because I have this little jingle that I sing anytime I see, I see an old guy like in their zone. Typically, this is with an old car. You know, like, I'll see a guy like driving, you know, a car that's, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old. It's like old guys, old cars, old guys. I love it. I love it so much. And so I, I did it last time that I preached during Advent. And so I, of course, have to do it this time. I have to talk about one of my favorite old guys. So there was a man. His name was Friedrich von Bodelschwing. Brilliant name. Absolutely brilliant. Now, Friedrich was a Christian living in Germany during the, the first half of the 20th century. He was actually a really good friend of another really famous German theologian that you probably know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Friedrich was the sort of, he was the president of an organization called the Bethel Foundation. It's still around today. And what, what they did at the Bethel Foundation was they built this small city in Germany for people with mental and physical disabilities. It was a safe haven for them in, in this world that was continuously trying to tell them that they don't have any value in society. And so they, they, every person in the Bethel community had a distinct role that was set out for them, not based on what they weren't able to do, but on what they were, what, what they were capable of. And I think this is still something that we're, that we're learning from today. And so, as you can imagine, Germany, 20th century, 1900s, we start, started to see the rise of the Nazi party. And over time, they started to establish what they call the Ubermensch, the, the, the superior race, this idea that we need to get rid of all members of society that don't contribute to our idea of perfect. Now this was so, the Bethel community was such a powerful force against this idea that Eric Metaxas, would, would, who, who wrote a biography about Bonhoeffer, would go on to say, it was the antithesis of the Nazi worldview that exalted power and strength. It was the gospel made visible, a fairy tale landscape of grace, where the weak and helpless were cared for in a palpably Christian atmosphere. Now, though Nazi enforcers would repeatedly knock on the doors of the Bethel community, demanding that it would be shut down, Friedrich repeatedly, every single time, would meet them with opposition. Eventually, it got to the point where, where Hitler himself called for the closing of this community and said, this will happen. So this is how, this is how Friedrich responds. Sort of indignation. He says this, he says, you can put me into a concentration camp if you want. That is your affair. But as long as I am free, you do not touch one of my patients. I cannot change to fit the times nor the wishes of the Fuhrer. I stand under orders from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is wrong. 
I am upset, and this cannot continue. And I, I have to admit, I want this. I want whatever this is that allows, that, that motivates a person to respond to adversity, to evil in this way, I want it. I want it for myself. I want it for our church. I want it for our world. And so I pray. I pray that God makes us into people that are capable of responding as such when the time comes. When that is, ex- when that is expressed in our world. And now it may not, be re- the, may not be the Nazis knocking on our door, but for some of us, that will be responding accordingly when we see a woman that is pregnant, who is alone and racked with fear. Or when we see our houseless neighbors on the street, especially here in downtown, or, or people around the world who go a lifetime without hope, what we believe is the hope of Jesus. I pray that when we become indignant over this, that we can respond accordingly this is wrong, I'm upset, and this cannot continue. Now, these stories move us, and I think it's, I think it's because this wouldn't typically be our first response, at least not for most of us. I know that there are some spiritual sages in the room, and we're so grateful that you are members of this church. And if, if, but if we can avoid giving in to self-protection, we often take justice into our own hands and risk just doing harm on the other side of that. Saul's in the cave. What do you do? Do you continue to hide or do you take his life into your own hands? Now again, two options. Third way, previously impossible. Now, Jesus offers this third way, but what, what do we do in that circumstance? Like when we're faced with that, what should be our initial response? I want to ask for your forgiveness because this, I won't say anything new today. I have no new truths, new, new sayings, no new wisdom. It's hopefully you're hearing it every week here at Hill City. Hopefully people are hearing it in churches all across the world every week. What do we do? We talk to God. We talk to God about it. How does David open up Psalm 7? He says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. First words. But I thought he was in a cave. Like, he's, he's actually taken the time to go out into the wilderness to hide, to conceal himself in a cave, and he's got these, this small army surrounding him. And I think it's something really profound that's going on in David's mind. He's angry. He's afraid. He's hidden in a hole in a rock. His life is in immediate danger, and how does he choose to respond? I'm hidden in you, God. I'm hidden in you. You protect me. So when Saul walks into the cave, what is it that motivates then his next move? He's no longer motivated by fear 
or anger or the need to take things into his own hands because he knows that it's God that is at work there. Some of us, my, my tendency is to think like, well, that's really sweet, like, that's really nice, but God is just going to love my enemies, and that's not what I'm really wanting right now. And actually, you know, there's a whole book about that in our Bible. It's called Jonah. I recommend reading it. And, and, and I just think like, oh, God is just like happy all the time, and that's just, that's just wrong. God loving his enemies is not just some like cute thing that God does. His nerves have been sandpapered raw. And this is where things get fuzzy because we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the good news. We dive headfirst into that paradox. And last week, Stephen um, talked about how in their time, God dealt with God's people in a certain way that was fitting for those people in that time. And he deals with us in a different way. God, God makes a covenant and he keeps it. And it's, and it's not surprising when we consider the whole story. God creates a perfect world, puts everything in order, only to watch that world return to chaos by the power of sin. He, watches, he makes this covenant, which is very one-sided, very one-sided. We actually have almost next to nothing to do, if anything. And he watches as humans spiral into this never-ending loop of pain, destruction, and chaos. So what does he do? How does he choose to respond? He's, his nerves are sandpapered raw. What, how should he respond to this? He sends his son to be born a man, and this is how he responds. This man lives, he works, he has relationships, he's, he suffers, and he dies at the hands of his enemies. It's the, biggest, like, it's the biggest twist we could possibly imagine. We, we cry out to God, we say, God, be a just judge between me and my enemies. How does he respond? He dies. God, uh, God dies for us and for them. In fact, there's this really interesting story. And in Revelation, John envisions Jesus on a white horse robe red because it's been dipped in blood there's a sword there's a sword coming out of his mouth all the saints are behind him in robes of pure white there's a horde of enemies in front of them but wh- when you look the battle hasn't even started yet so whose blood whose blood is covering Jesus's robe it's his blood it's his blood. So somehow, somehow in this great paradox, the way that Jesus finds best to triumph over his enemies is the shedding of his own blood on their behalf. If you're preparing communion, I invite you to come and begin getting that ready. And we know many of us, that somehow it is through this very blood that we ourselves are made whole. 
along with all that would follow King Jesus, even our enemies. None of us started as friends of God, but the good news is that Christ is in the business of justifying the guilty. Eugene Peterson says, says it this way, that all God's arrows, flaming arrows that we saw in Psalm 7, are aimed at provoking repentance. Now let me be very clear. There's a day coming where evil will cease to exist forever. This is what we believe. This is the hope that we have as followers of Jesus. God will not allow it forever. He surprises us in goodness and in mercy, and he surprises us with his love and his indignation. So what is the best thing that we can do when we are riddled with anger over the injustice of our world? We talk to God. We talk to God about it. We trust that he actually sees what is going on, and he, he cares far more than we do, actually. We trust that he sees what is going on, that he has done, is doing, and will do something about it. We can live as people who have hope that even though all things seem to be fighting against us and we're doing everything right, we can join in with David in this psalm where he says, I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I'm hidden in you, God. And now we're just left to try it. That's all we have left. We're just left to, to do it, to talk to God. The Spirit of God has already done all of the heavy lifting, and, and we turn our attention and our affection to the one that in the language of the mystics is closer to us than our very breath. It's difficult, it's tedious, it's time-consuming, yes. It's the total fulfillment of everything that we could hope for. In Christ, we can come to a place where we find ourselves hidden in God, made right, kept right. For some of us today, that, that means admitting for the very first time that you're not always the person that you hope that people see you as, and that actually taking off the mask, letting people see all of that, to give that over to God is the best thing, is what we actually need in this time. So I pray that if, you, if you're experiencing that today, that desire to be fully known and fully loved, that you would take that very seriously. During communion up here at the front, we're going to have some elders and staff who would love to have that conversation with you to begin this process, this journey with you. And eventually we'll come to a place with the voices of all, all saints across all generations, we can say, all shall be well. All shall be well all manner of things shall be well. Come to the table.